This is the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. This episode is brought to you in association with Off the Shelf. Laura Alston presents Hidden Histories, stories from Sheffield General Cemetery. My name is Laura Alston. I'm a historian and PhD student at the University of Sheffield, specialising in the 18th century, the history of emotions and in social and cultural history. I'm also a heritage professional and I'm currently working as the activity and engagement officer on Sheffield City Council's heritage lottery funded project at Sheffield General Cemetery. I've always loved cemeteries. As a historian of emotion history, I find that cemeteries are places which are full of feeling. The inscriptions of headstones tell us so much about the sentimental and cultural emotions around death, which were popular at different times, but also give glimpses into the feelings people had for one another and the ways in which they could express those feelings in their historic moment and visual and linguistic culture. Sheffield General Cemetery opened in 1836 and closed for burials in the 1970s. It became established as the principal burial ground in Victorian Sheffield, containing the graves of 87,000 people. The site today is a Grade II listed park, which is one of the highest listed in Sheffield, and one of only five listed at Grade II or Grade I in South Yorkshire. It's a conservation area, an area of natural history interest and a local nature reserve. Amongst the graves is the largest single public grave plot in the country, holding the bodies of over 80 people. Public graves were designated to those who could not afford a private grave. The people buried at the cemetery contain a huge variety of backgrounds, from many important figures in Sheffield history, such as Mark Firth, the steel manufacturer, and Samuel Holbury, the chartist, to the unknown everyday lives which populate our social and cultural history. Cemeteries are not spaces which are full of death, but are where we can really find the lives of people. Those lives are there to be rediscovered and truly display the variety of stories, people and contexts which have made up the history of Sheffield. History is not static, there is not one narrative, and it's my job as a historian to seek to look at the range of perspectives available and how they all work together to tell a bigger story. Social and cultural history, emotion history and microhistory all rely on drawing out all the different nuanced narratives of people's lives to truly understand what we usually see as the big picture of history. As part of my job, I've been developing several new trails around the cemetery. These trails highlight lots of the different lives and perspectives that can be found on the site. The trails explore all the different ways into and around the cemetery and how people can engage with it and find connections to heritage there. The stories in these trails are focused around broad themes. The themes are the cemetery landscape, transcendental tales, industrial connections, artists and artistes, radical Sheffield and buried stories. For each of these trails, we are planning a range of connected events and activities around these themes for all ages and audiences. For this talk, I'm going to give a glimpse into some of the stories which are being researched for each of these themes, beginning with the landscape of the cemetery itself, moving to the transcendental symbols found there, and then to the stories of the global industrial connections found in the material culture of the site, and in the industrial connections of many people buried in the cemetery. And then on to some of Sheffield's other global influences through art and theatre, 
to other figures which have shaped our local, national and international histories through Sheffield's radical history, to the complete unknown and hidden stories of the everyday people who make up the cemetery's residents. For much of this information, I am indebted to the work of the many history volunteers who have been researching these stories for years, especially Jane Horton, Joe Meredith and Shirley Baxter, who have been instrumental in educating me in the history and stories of the site and welcomed me to also research some of the hidden stories found there. Each of these themes and glimpses show that there are many ways to walk around the General Cemetery and always something different to see and new to learn, different paths to take and stories to find every time you pass through. Beginning with the landscape of the cemetery itself is to look at a gem with many facets. The original non-conformist part of the cemetery was designed by Samuel Worth and opened in 1836 as a solution for the overcrowded burial sites in the city and to cater to the large number of non-conformists who wanted their own burial sites. It was intended to sit sympathetically within the landscape of what was then the countryside of the Porter Valley. Worth used the natural slopes of the site to create an Arcadian vista, punctuated by the antique Egyptian-inspired chapel, and which created an idea of a classical necropolis, with views across to other classically designed buildings, such as the Porticode King Edward School, the neoclassical building known as the Mount on Glossop Road, Worth's own Greek-inspired villa, and the glass house of the Botanical Gardens. The Anglican part of the cemetery was extended to a plan by William Flockton and designed by Robert Marnock in 1850 in order to try and make some financial success out of the site which had not seen as much commercial success as had been hoped. They hoped that more income could be made by including the Anglican community. Marnock, who had designed the botanical gardens and who had worked with Worth originally, extended the idea of flowing paths and the landscaped garden design of the site. The cemetery was designed to be a romantic place of serenity, complementing the gardens and a place for the living to walk through pleasantly, as well as a site for burial. The new area of consecrated ground was separated from the initial cemetery by the original wall, known as the Dissenters' Wall. To learn more about the design and history of the cemetery, I would suggest the book Remote and Undisturbed, which was written by members of Sheffield General Cemetery Trust and gives the story in great detail. The influx of burials after that point disrupted Marnock and Worth's original garden vision, as a more regimented layout of smaller pots was adopted. Today, the burials which are still in situ provide moving features to the gothic and wondrous feeling of the site. It still has the original intended aura of crossing into a transcendental place, crossing the River Styx into Elysium. Today, the HLF project seeks to uphold that vision. The cemetery, though now somewhat different in vista to its earliest iteration in the countryside, retains the aura of a rural, natural retreat in the now urban landscape. The place is a haven for wildlife. Every season there are new things to see, including the plants which were brought in by the Victorians, trees and animals. The remnants of bluebells and wild garlic on the east side of the cemetery speak to what was there before the cemetery was built. Keep a lookout for nature-focused events and activities put on by the Trust and the project all year round for all ages and audiences which explore fully this landscape. 
The council project I'm part of and the trust who work on the site are committed to preserving the peace of the site and exploring the fantasy held in the enigmatic mythology that inspired the gates and buildings, as well as looking into the stories held by the burials. This is at the forefront of everything that is done at the cemetery. The landscape and material culture found in the cemetery tell so much, from the stones used in different buildings and monuments, to the symbols and carvings on those monuments and gravestones, which demonstrate insights into fashions and personal connections to commemoration. There are only a few angels on site, but there is a decided trend towards the neoclassical. The monuments tend towards the simple but deeply beautiful. Those that have a more decorative carving connect to the stories of those buried there, with globes hinting at connections to the wide world, weeping women and broken trees suggesting lives cut short. These striking edifices were intended to impress the living and preserve the prestige of the dead long into the future. Those carvings of broken trees, the weeping willows and carved crying women are part of the later stages of the long-standing transcendental art movement of Memento Mori. Early Memento Mori used stark reminders of death, skulls, skeletons and hourglasses to remind people of the presence of death in their lives but also to continue to retain a connection to those who were dead. Later fashions in Memento Mori diversified and by the late Georgian and Victorian periods the trend was for softened symbols and images that accounted more for fashions for the romantic and natural and also which presented a different cultural attitude towards the emotions around death. As Christian Holmes suggests, the focus of mourning was no longer the mourned and their fame but instead the mourners and their mourning. According to Home, the living were the ones that became central to ideas of grief and memory and the public show of such sentiments. What we see around the cemetery is sensibility and sentiment written into the stones. An idea of death as a peaceful sleep which left mourners behind who portrayed their grief in what were considered proper, polite and genteel ways. Women were often a focus for these symbols due to their perceived feminine connections to gentility and the sensibility of grief. During the Victorian period, the culture around mourning featured many social rituals. The fashion for classical features and the ideas taken from Egyptian mythology, including the image of the snake eating itself to symbolise everlasting life on the Egyptian gate of the cemetery, were connected to ideas of gentility of presenting one's knowledge of the classical education and the ability to afford the trappings of wealth which were found in the objects one had in one's home. These prizes from Britain's global trade and industry and connections to colonialisation are found in the imagery and wealth reflected in the larger monuments. Some of the finds which hold these connections clearly within them are the porcelain roses found around the nonconformist chapel when it was being renovated. These were part of a 19th and early 20th century fashion for immortelle, or everlasting flowers. Queen Victoria was gifted such a wreath by Prince Albert in 1845. These wreaths were part of a trend towards natural symbols of mourning, combined with the notion of everlasting sentiment and permanent commemoration. Whilst Prince Albert wanted to suggest his enduring love for Victoria, these kinds of wreaths, popular in France, sparked the fashion for funerary porcelain flowers. 
the most expensive versions used real porcelain, whilst other mourners who were less affluent could afford cheaper ceramic and paste options. The porcelain is also connected to global imports and British manufacturing. Porcelain became very popular in the 18th century, imported from China and was imitated by British manufacturers who wanted to capitalise on the craze for such goods by making cheaper versions which were available to more people. Sheffield's industry was built on the back of such global connections, goods and emulations of fashion through imports and exports across a global and colonial trade network. The industrialists buried in the cemetery capitalised and shipped out their goods, especially metalwork products, to the new markets created by British colonialism and across the world. These global industrial connections made the fortunes of many of those with the biggest monuments in the cemetery. What's often forgotten about is the stories of other lives, of those who worked in these industries who were also buried there, of those who came into the city to work in these industries from all over the world, and for the countless others across the globe affected by this global industry and by the violence and domination of British expansionism. One of these hidden stories which has recently come to light is that of William Jumbo, a man living on the wicker in the mid-1800s, pronounced as coming from Africa. He died of apoplexy, which was the name given to different forms of internal bleeding, likely, in William's case, to be a stroke. William was buried in the cemetery in September of 1850. William might have been one of the thousands of black people living in Victorian England. Many were British-born, having been for generations. During the 18th century and earlier, there was evidence of black people in a varied range of experiences, means and professions, from students who came for study, those with a private income who came for business or leisure, sailors, farmers, merchants, innkeepers, actors and doctors, to servants. Many people were brought here enslaved during the 18th century, and some managed to liberate themselves here. During the Victorian period, more people came to Britain from many countries in Africa and America and the Caribbean, seeking refuge from enslavement to study and to settle or to find work. They joined the existing generations of black British people. Many were part of the colonial workforce in the Navy, Army and other industries. Historians such as Professor David Olashoga Professor Oliver Totele and Dr Miranda Kaufman, alongside other organisations such as the Black Cultural Archives, have been instrumental in reconstructing the lives and experiences of black British people throughout the entirety of British history. It's important to look into what has largely been a hidden history and think about what William's experiences might have been. William living on the wicker would have been adjacent to a lot of workshops and sites of industry, his neighbours were cutlers and glaziers and other metal workers, and it's very likely that William was employed in one of these trades. William may have been born in Liberia, as there's a record of a William Jambo who was a 20-year-old native of Cape Palmas in Liberia, baptised in Liverpool in 1808. There are also quite a few instances of people with the surname Jumbo or Jambo in the Navy during this period. There is one William Jambo from Sierra Leone who was born in 1782 and named as working in the Navy in the 1830s, and another William Jumbo born in West Africa in 1834. Either of these could be our William ending up in Sheffield. 
The name Jumbo might connect William to the west coast of Africa. Other people with the surname Jumbo were recorded on passenger ships coming from that region, many from Liberia and Nigeria. Part of the Industrial Connections theme of the project is to work to uncover and tell stories like William's. Other incomers who added to the richness of Sheffield came as artistes, part of the touring theatrical companies, circuses and fairgrounds, many of whom can also be found in the cemetery, having died whilst being in the city, or having settled here to capitalise on the rich theatrical environment which the city has always promoted. The project theme of artists and artistes explores where these people can be found in their stories. They are wide and varied, including the famous black tragedian Samuel Morgan Smith, who came from Philadelphia and was famous for his Shakespearean acts, who died in retirement and poverty in Sheffield. There are also a host of circus performers and proprietors buried here, including Harvey Teasdale, Fred Hartley the Elephant Trainer and Robert Fawcett of Fawcett Circus. Some of those who were brought in were part of travelling shows, such as the touring Ashante Village show, in which people in their village from the African Ashante Empire were put on display for the entertainment of Sheffield audiences. The British Empire had just completed their long-running aim of taking over the Ashante Empire in 1902, and so this kind of display was a way to reinforce the narrative of othering, subjugation and exploitation of people under British imperial oppression. One of the children of the Ashanti village, Kaya Kozia, died whilst the Ashanti people were here and was buried in the cemetery. As Alex Jackson wrote for the University of Sheffield's History Matters blog, that Kaya Kozia was born and died whilst her parents were part of this show serves as a poignant and tragic reminder of the unresolved issues which surround these shows, in which racism and shocking exploitation stood in uncomfortable relation to interest, admiration and human agency. We do not get to hear the voices of the people who were put on display, but through the cemetery's stories we can catch a glimpse of how they were connected to these broad social narratives. Other performers who are revealed give insight into the stories of women, including those of Edwina and Florence Callender. Edwina was the daughter of Edwin Callender, who was the director of the Theatre Royal in the 1880s. Edwin's wife was from a theatrical family and was noted for her impersonation of Lady Macbeth. She died of a cerebral haemorrhage, having collapsed while waiting to go on stage at Manchester's Free Trade Hall. Florence Callender had worked in one production with Mrs Charles Pitt, who continued management of the Theatre Royal after her husband, Charles Dibden Pitt, died in 1886. Also buried in the cemetery is the brother of child actress Ellen Turnan, who made her stage debut in Sheffield at the age of three, when she and her two sisters were presented as an infant phenomena perhaps at the Theatre Royal, where her father was acting manager for at least one production in 1842. Ellen would become the mistress of Charles Dickens in later life. The publicity of performance gives more access to these stories of people who might otherwise have been lost. Another way in which we can uncover the glimpses of lives, especially those of women, is in the radical acts of activism and bravery which have shaped our social history and have been documented in ways other than census birth and death records. Sheffield has forever been a place in which radical ideas have thrived earlier than in many other places in Britain. Sheffield was early on the uptake for chartism, unionism, the abolition of slavery and suffrage, amongst other kinds of activism. 
However, even with the fame of these movements, research is required to find out about the stories of those involved, especially those like women who are often obscured. One such story is that of Mary Cooper, who shares a grave with her much more famous husband, Samuel Holbury. Whilst Holbury is memorialised on a plaque in the city centre Peace Gardens for his efforts in the Chartist movement, Mary, who was also arrested alongside Samuel for her part in the organisation of the Sheffield Rising, and who was one of the many women of the Chartist movement who wrote articles and organised protests, has been largely forgotten. Her name does not appear on the plaque in the Peace Gardens. She lost her child just after being freed, and yet still continued to campaign for the release of Samuel. After his death, she remained a Chartist and activist, joining in support of the first national miners' strike in 1844. Mary's just one of several activists buried in the graveyard, of whom the trail and radical Sheffield around the cemetery serves to highlight. She is featured along with other women buried in the cemetery in the Sheffield General Cemetery Trust publication, She Lived Unknown. James Montgomery, the activist and poet, whose statue and grave was once in the cemetery but is now sited outside Sheffield Cathedral, connects me to my final theme. James's poems reflected his concern for humanitarian issues, especially with the exploitation of children and the poor. He wrote, "'Tis human action paints the chart of time." And so, finally, I want to turn to the thread that runs through a lot of these themes, but also has ongoing research and a trail in its own right, the theme of buried stories. As a social and cultural historian and a proponent of microhistory and emotion history, I believe that in order to understand the big context of history, we have to put together and reconstruct the stories of the micro, of the everyday lives people lived. People's stories build history. Our everyday actions really do build the chart of time. It's real people who are behind every movement and live through every big moment. The cemetery is a place in which the richness of all those perspectives, all those lives can be found and reconstructed through a wide range of different primary sources, from census records to property records and newspapers. All of these kinds of sources help us understand the larger picture of history and how this history connects to much bigger local, national and international narratives. The 87,000 people in the cemetery all have stories to tell and every one of us will be able to find connections in the wealth of human experience that they possess. I will leave you with just one of these stories, the tragic account of the Appleby family, who would probably be completely forgotten were they not connected with the terrible events of the Great Sheffield Flood in 1864. A whole three generations of the Applebys were lost in the Great Sheffield Flood, which was the result of the catastrophic collapse of the New Dale Dyke or Bradfield Dam, built by the Sheffield Water Company in response to the rapidly growing city's need for water. The area around Neepsend, Hillsborough and Owlerton were affected very badly. For days after the tragedy, bodies were still being found during the endless mud clearing. The affected areas were a hub of industrial activity, workshops and homes, and were densely populated. The recorded deaths of people in the flood give us a real insight into the experiences of life for families at the time in the area. One of these people, the body of Mary Appleby, a widow aged 62 years, was found in Jordan Meadows. She was the mother of John Cowton Appleby, a grocer from Hillsborough. John was a widower, his wife having died the previous year. 
1861, Mary Appleby had been earning her living as a seamstress in Norwich Street and was caring for her granddaughter, Mary, aged 10, the daughter of John's brother, Stephen Cowton Appleby of Altrincham. It looks as if Mary was brought up by her grandmother following the death of Stephen's wife. It was not unusual for fathers to rely on elder siblings, aunts and grandmothers to care for their children after their wives died. Without state support and to avoid the threat of being dependent on the parish, extensive families relied on each other for shared childcare and income. When John's wife Ellen also died, leaving a two-year-old daughter Annie Maria, it seems probable that Mary went to live with John to look after her second motherless granddaughter, taking the young Mary with her. Annie Maria Appleby, three years old in 1864, would be the only one of the family in the household to survive the flood. The prevalent way of life for families like Annie Maria's in the area, tight intergenerational family structures living together or all close by, with their workshops or means of work in that home also, was shattered by the flood. After the disaster, Cowton Appleby, the younger brother of John and Stephen, as the administrator of his mother's estate, lodged a claim against the water company for lost property, including clothing, furniture, a small library of books and burial expenses, which he valued at £39.13. shillings. This claim gives us another glimpse into what was in the house and what was lost, and also the terrible emotional toll of this loss. He was awarded £24.00. For loss of stock and property belonging to his brother, he claimed £98, 7 shillings and fourpence and was awarded £65. For the welfare of his brother's child, he claimed £750 and was awarded £200. He also claimed £100 for the loss of his mother and that claim is listed as withdrawn. I have only been able in this talk to touch upon a few of the thousands of stories there are still to be discovered in the cemetery. There is ongoing research into all of the trail themes I have mentioned, but especially this last one of buried stories, and if anyone is interested in taking part in the research or in making it available and accessible to all, then please get in touch with me to get involved. My email is laura.alston at sheffield.gov.uk. Also, the cemetery has a varied programme of events and activities, and there will be loads to do and see coming up, both online and on-site. Find out more on the cemetery's website and follow the cemetery on their social media. I hope that I've managed to take you on a journey through the cemetery's history, landscape and the diverse stories which can be found there. And that I've demonstrated the themes that we can see throughout the cemetery which reach out into local, national and international connections and significance. Finally, I hope that you will visit for yourselves and see who and what you might find there for yourself. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.